0: And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, introducing Matthew Akins. He's a freelance reporter, but who also uh, writes pretty regularly for the New York Times. And if you read Fool's there, and you know I cited him about the election of 2014, uh, he and Gopal wrote for Harper's all about what a disaster it was. And also he did that great report where he snuck in to uh, Yemen back during the beginning of the Yemen war and reported from the Sada province and all that. Remember? Great reporter. And uh, he's got a new book out. It's called The Naked Don't Fear the Water, An Underground Journey with Afghan Refugees. And he's got this really important piece in the New York Times, the Taliban's dangerous collision course with the West. Welcome back to the show, Matthew. How are you doing, sir?
1: Great. Thanks for having me.
0: Happy to have you here. Uh, Listen, so first of all, I got to apologize to you. I have not read your book, and I don't know when I'm going to find the time. I'm all caught up with Russia's stuff here. But um, I'd like to hear very much. uh, I very much would like to hear about your book, The Naked Don't Fear the Water. First of all, what does that title mean?
1: Well, it's a Dari proverb in Afghanistan. Lucha's Obna Mitarsad. And it means if you got nothing to lose, you got nothing to fear. Uh And that is the situation of the refugees from Afghanistan and other countries that this book is about.
0: Gotcha. So, and now, so take us back, I guess, I'm curious about the refugee crisis here and the way all this played out, because, you know, America had been at war in the Middle East since the turn of the century. Um, And then, of course, you had the Arab Spring Breakout and the wars, you know, first Afghanistan and Iraq, but then Libya and Syria and the rest. But it seems like the, and and they really started in 2011, uh, but it seems like the refugee crisis from all of these countries, really seemed to hit right at 2015 and 2016. So I wonder if we could start with, what is really the explanation for that? Well,
1: as you know, I've been covering these wars for years, and I'd seen all the people displaced first inside their own country, and then going across borders to neighboring countries, which is usually where refugees first go, to countries like Turkey or Egypt. And... What happened was, essentially, has been described not as a refugee crisis, but a crisis of the European border system. So what Europe had done is it had made deals with all these strong men and dictators that surrounded the continent, people like Gaddafi in Libya or Hosni Mubarak in Egypt, and they were the ones that were keeping people out. They were Europe's gatekeepers. They were toppled by the Arab Spring. So that system began to break down. People started to cross. In Turkey, it was that Erdogan, the strongman, was having problems with Europe and tired of hosting millions of Syrian refugees. So people started to flood into Europe over a period of about a year, starting the summer of 2015. About a million people crossed the Mediterranean Sea and entered the European Union. It's the largest movement of refugees by sea in history. And this is the moment that I was in Kabul and one of my best friends there, Omar, he's a translator, we'd worked together. He'd also worked for the American military, military as a translator. He'd been with the special forces and he'd applied for one of these special immigrant visas where you know the uh, U.S. government allows Iraqis and Afghans who are in danger to come to the U.S. And he should have gotten it but didn't because of paperwork, he was rejected. And so he decided to risk his life, go as a refugee to Europe in the hopes of safe haven, and I wanted to report on this crisis from the inside and go with him, but the only way I could do that given the risk of being arrested or kidnapped was to go undercover as an Afghan refugee myself, which I was able to do because even though I'm not Afghan, I kind of look Afghan and I speak the language, so we travel together through the mountains and deserts with smugglers, and that is a story at the heart of this book.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. And so, now I'm just curious, and I know we can't go through the whole thing. Um, but you guys went north of the Caspian Sea, or you went somehow through Iran and Iraq and Turkey and Syria and through that route.
1: Yeah, well, the the main route that we followed, and there was a few twists and turns, which I won't get into here. But the main route, the hard route overland, goes from the southwestern corner of Afghanistan, Nimrod, oh. through the deserts that actually, migrants actually dip down through um, Pakistan and then into Iran, and this is the same route that a lot of opium goes, by the way. And then they cross Iran and they go over the Zagros Mountains into Turkey. All of this was smugglers, illegally, hiding from the police, you know, at risk of getting shot or kidnapped. Wow. And then they cross Turkey, They arrive in Istanbul with a big community of migrants, Afghan Syrians, you know, after Syrians, Afghans are the second largest uh, nationality that crossed into Europe during the crisis. From there, they can get on these little rubber boats and cross to the Greek islands and land on the shore. I'm sure you've all seen those images of people coming ashore, women, children, on the beaches. And then from there, they go to Greece And the route continues up through the Balkans and into Europe. Most people are trying to get to places like Germany or Sweden or even uh, the UK.
0: Yeah. Well, and, you know, not to get too far into this too, but boy, did all of this provoke a massive reaction to the right in Europe and in America and all over the place. And probably, you know, you can attribute Brexit and Donald Trump and a lot more, you know, a lot of. Brexiteer types being elected to the european parliament and all that can be you know all that was sort of reaction to a lot of this and as you said is at least in the cases of uh syria and libya it was the americans who overthrew the bottle cap on the refugees right um and allowed them to all come through at the same time that they were creating all these refugees with their violent wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and the dirty war in Syria, which still counts. And of course, Assad, once the war started, Assad only had control over the west of his country. And the east was just, you know, a free fire zone there for years. So, so all of this was made in Washington, D.C., really. And the Europeans were either in on it or at least stood out of the way.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. These wars were all connected in, in one way or another to the war on terror and and other, you know, um, imperialist wars abroad, but at the end of the day, it's it's a much bigger problem um, than just those wars. It's linked to the tremendous disparity that exists between the global north and the global south. You know, you have people who are living in very desperate situations, who are facing corruption, grinding poverty, ecological disaster, and as long as there's such a stark difference in you know income and wealth between the north and the south people are going to keep making these journeys and you're going to have brutality at the border um, to keep them out
0: sure although gigantic explosions going off all around you it's a real kick in the butt to get up and move compared to just being poor which is you know the typical condition of humanity up until recently here so um you know Whatever percent it is, it's a lot more when it's wartime. But, you know, so this brings up a question. I know it's just sort of fantasy thinking, but since the Taliban is right back where they started when we overthrew them 20 years ago, uh, as you've written about here, I wonder what you think about or if you do think about the way I do. What if they had really just targeted bin Laden and Zawahiri at Tora Bora, or hell, even deliberately let them go, but just left the Taliban alone and not done a regime change in Kabul and instead essentially just treated them with decent respect, nothing special, and just spent 20 years being nice and maybe ridiculing them where they need being ridiculed and helping them out where they can. And, you know, I'm not saying put them put Afghanistan completely on the American dole forever or whatever. But what if we had just tried to lead them with the light of liberty and not the light of a laser designator for the last generation? How much better of a place would we be in now than the place where we are, which is right back where we started only with a few hundred thousand extra dead people?
1: I think it's hard to make a case that we could be much worse off than we are now, which is exactly with the Taliban back in power with uh, the leader of Al-Qaeda until recently in Kabul, you know, who just got taken out by a drone strike. So what have those 20 years accomplished besides a lot of death and destruction and radicalization? Now, there were a lot of gains that were made. Um, Afghans rebuilt their country, but but maybe they would have found a way to do it uh, under the Taliban as well. It's 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 just really hard to to use these kind of counterfactuals. The war was misguided in the very least from the beginning, and the way that it developed, you know, as such a boondoggle involving so much corruption, um, a lot of deceit on the on the part of our military and our government leaders, one that inflicted a massive toll, uh, not only overseas, you know, in these countries which bore the brunt of the suffering, but also at home. You know, there's so many broken families and, and shattered lives in america and i and i just think that it should give us um real skepticism about even the best intentioned uh, overseas interventions
0: yeah you know uh youtube forever has pulled up in the margin a video clip of a marine talking about his time in vietnam you may have seen it i don't know the algorithm has just for years has wanted to show it to me but it's like 15 minutes long and i just never had the full 15 and i just didn't click on it for years, I finally was sitting at the hotel doing nothing. YouTube served it up for me in the margin again. I said, fine, I sit there and watch it. It sounds like he's talking about Afghanistan. A little bit more brutal. Okay, a lot bit more brutal. But still the same story about, you know, we're protecting the South from the North. In the case of Afghanistan, we're protecting the North from the South and the East, I guess, you know. Um, and uh, But it's one country that we're talking about here. Is This completely artificial designation. And the people that we're supposed to be helping... Well, we're killing them, and they absolutely hate our guts. And when I got there, I thought, hooray, I'm going to be greeted like a liberator, and I'm going to help these poor people and fight off the bad guy enemy. And then, boy, did I quit believing that after just a few weeks, and this and that. And just anyway, listen to the guy go on. It sounds like he's describing the exact same war.
1: Yeah, the, the fact of the matter is, is that the same system that produced the Vietnam War has, was still in place, you know, when 9-11 happened same military industrial complex, the same kind of uh, national security state. And so it's not as surprising that we make the same errors again and again.
0: Yeah. Um, All right. So now let me ask you about the Great Depression in Afghanistan now, because, you know, you mentioned the corruption there and, and all the foreign money coming in. It was $40 a year, I think, was the average, right? Uh, Leading up to the end of the war. And then now all that's gone, right? So this is just every market, every price structure in Afghanistan has crashed and had to be reset. And, you know, whatever food distribution, you know, I guess the aid must have gone through a major decrease. And then whatever food is being grown locally and distributed or even imported, the distribution systems have broken down. And so... Even from the very beginning after the withdrawal, they said, oh, man, famine's going to set in right now for this winter, last winter. So I wonder if you can really help draw a picture for us of what is the humanitarian situation, especially in terms of hunger and starvation in Afghanistan now?
1: Sure. Well, I think first it's important to understand that even though... The US and its allies spent more than a hundred billion dollars on development aid in Afghanistan, building schools and bridges and lots of other more dubious projects like capacity building. Afghanistan remained one of the poorest and most aid-dependent countries in the world. And so when that aid was suddenly cut off after this Taliban seized power, naturally you had a complete crash. You know, the economy collapsed. There were, you know, all these government workers who salaries couldn't be paid, teachers, people, hospital workers, doctors. So there was tremendous suffering, uh, massive unemployment, near universal poverty. And over the fall, the U.N. warned that half the country was on the brink of starvation. That this is the world's largest humanitarian crisis. So I went back in May to, to see what had happened. It was my first trip back since I had covered the collapse of the Republic and the evacuation the previous fall. And what I discovered was that you know the famine actually hadn't happened, but that was because there was this massive humanitarian surge happening. There are actually more aid workers working for humanitarian agencies inside Afghanistan today than there were before the US troops withdrew. And over the winter, the World Food Program was feeding close to half the population. There's billions of dollars in humanitarian aid that have been earmarked for Afghanistan. Uh, the U.S. is the largest contributor. The, the U.S. is also one of the causes of the humanitarian crisis because the, the Biden administration seized Afghan bank assets, $7 billion. They've earmarked half for 9-11 families and, there, and, and other victims. And so you have this humanitarian cash is being infused in the country. Um, the weird position of the u s. being both a cause of and, you know, kind of largest donor of aid. And right now it's it's just it's just being it's just being stabilized. The country's being kept on life support. The u n is flying in pallets of one hundred dollars bills into the country nearly a billion dollars to date. And this is the co- Taliban is cooperating with this, and it's had the corollary effect of helping to stabilize their new government.
0: but the alternative would be quite literally a
1: famine in the country,
0: yeah, well, and so I guess the idea is, though, that these guys are as cruel as a regime could be and they must be taking all that money and spending it on themselves and not helping the people. Is there any accountability? Is the food getting to the poor, especially out in the countryside, do you think?
1: There are a lot of problems delivering it, but the the food and, and, and the money is not going directly to the Taliban. In fact, that's the whole point, is that the development aid that we're talking the hundreds of the hundred billion dollars we're talking about before that was going to the Afghan government or, or, or basically with the Afghan government. Now the Taliban in power that is in power, that's all cut off. What is happening is humanitarian aid, but that's delivered directly by the UN and the aid agencies on the ground. Yeah. So is a lot of waste and corruption? Sure. But it's not going directly to the Taliban. What it's had the effect of doing is stabilizing the, the country somewhat um, and helping the Taliban, govern. And of course, a lot of the money that is spent eventually ends up back in government coffers through taxes.
0: Yeah. By the way, did you read that thing by Thomas Gibbons Neff about, I don't know, half a year ago about how he went back to Helmand and met with the old man who had been kind of the leader of the local militia that he'd been fighting before and they sat and had tea and all that?
1: Yeah, I read that piece and I know TM. Yeah,
0: it's just an amazing story where and the bottom line of the whole thing is, and this is in you know the worst of the fighting down in Helmand for the Marines and everything and the bottom line is why was Neff at war with this old man and his men again and nobody knows
1: well, you know, he was, no good reason yeah i mean i think it's i think it's hard to feel like they accomplished anything when all those areas where they fought and died for are now back in the hands of Taliban
0: yeah it's just amazing. And like what difference does it make, right? Like they it already was in the hands of the Taliban all along anyway. That's where they're from, you know, right or not? Well,
1: I think we just really misunderstood what we were doing there. We are intervening on one side of a civil war, and it wasn't necessarily the good guy's side, especially in a place like Helmand, where the government was deeply involved in drug trafficking and corruption and abuses against locals that caused them to support the Taliban. But again, this is what, again, what you see in places like Vietnam, where we backed extremely corrupt regime in the South. We had uh, South Vietnamese death squads working with the CIA to target... The Viet Cong. And that was again the case in Afghanistan. We had a lot of brutal uh, militias working for the CIA. You had Afghan government forces that were routinely involved in torturing people and extrajudicial executions. And don't get me wrong, the Taliban was pretty nasty too. They were doing a lot of the same things. But was this some kind of war where we were on the right side of it? I think that is is really hard to say. You know, it's pretty murky in a place like Helmand, and we 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 obscured that. I think with a lot of these aid projects where we were helping, you know, Afghan girls to study, which is of course a good thing. Afghan girls should study, but was that the purpose of the war? Was that really what it was accomplishing? I think that uh, for a long time we 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 lied to ourselves about what we were really
0: doing in Afghanistan. Yeah. Well. Some of them lied to the rest of us anyway, but yeah. Um, I think they
1: did. And those people are still uh, in government. They're still setting U.S. policy. They are now very much in the driver's seat on what we're doing in Ukraine. And to be honest, I think we haven't learned much
0: in the way of lessons, not ones
1: that are going to stick anyways.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really too bad. And I, you know, we're going to have Daniel Davis on, the former lieutenant colonel, to talk about Petraeus' spin. And this is coming back talking about this on twitter this morning about this is how they did it with vietnam too oh we could have won if you'd just given us a little bit more money and a little bit more time and once we got rid of westmoreland and brought in abrams see we were going to implement the strategy that would have worked if the new york times hadn't stabbed us in the back and all that same kind of stuff makes it you know where it's not their fault it's everybody's fault but the people who lost the war like a bunch of world war one generals you know um, yeah,
1: everyone's fault, with the people who we gave billions of dollars to and complete control over—you know, tens of thousands of American lives.
0: Yeah, seriously. Um, so, I mean, and as as uh, one of my uh, interlocutors put it on Twitter this morning, it's going to require a real effort on our part to continue to push back on that new mythmaking and refuse to allow them to establish those lies as the new facts. You know. Uh, if they could have possibly stayed, they would have stayed. <laughs> you know, we all know that that's the real truth of it. Um, now, yeah, I think that's
1: what there's an opportunity for people like myself, journalists, but also academics and anyone who's interested in the conflict. You know, it, there's a chance to write the the real history. When I was back in Afghanistan. Um, I was amazed at the kind of access that I could get. I could travel around the country to places that were extremely dangerous to go before, even traveling kind of undercover as I used to, because the Taliban are in control now. And if you deal with them, um, they will allow you to work. And I'm under no illusions that I have a lot of privilege as a Western male journalist. But the point is I want to use that to get out there and to 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 uncover so many things that were were hidden for us for a number of years, you know, the other side of the story, and so I do think there's a chance to write um, the real history of the war. There's going to be a battle of uh, over the memory of Afghanistan. There's that there's that great great, great um, quote from uh, Viet Tran Nguyen, where uh, all wars are fought twice: first in the battlefield, and and the second time in memory.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, y'all. The audiobook of my book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, is finally done. Yes, of course, read by me. It's available at Audible, Amazon, Apple Books, and soon on Google Play and whatever other options there are out there. It's my history of America's war on terrorism from 1979 through today. Give it a listen and see if you agree. It's time to just come home. Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, the audiobook. Hey, guys, I've had a lot of great webmasters over the years, but the team at expanddesigns.com have by far been the most competent and reliable. Harley Abbott and his team have made great sites for the show and the Institute, and they keep them running well, suggesting and making improvements all along. Make a deal with expanddesigns.com for your new business or news site. They will take care of you. Use the promo code Scott and save $500. That's expanddesigns.com. A Big part of the reason that people do know the truth about that war, and I cite you heavily in Fool's Aaron, and I forget, but probably in Enough Already as well. Um, on, on uh, Afghanistan and on Yemen, in Enough Already, uh, so yeah, all that stuff's really important, and, right. and we are up against the war machine itself, so they have a lot of uh, you know, incentive. And uh, finance behind their narrative building. So it's a hell of a fight that we've got, you know, from now on still, you know. Um, but now, so talk about, as you do in your great article for The Times, uh, you talk about the actual status of education for girls. This was one of the major excuses for continuing the war for so long, as you mentioned there. Um, but uh, despite all the hype, I think buried in here, you have... The lead is that the World Bank says that education for girls, even out in the countryside, has increased since America left. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And and that's because mostly the security situation has improved, especially in rural areas. So parents feel more comfortable sending their girls to school, knowing they're not going to get caught in the fighting or roadside bomb. Some of them, the conservative ones, because Afghanistan is a very, very conservative uh, Muslim country. And some of them feel more comfortable sending their girls to school under the Islamic Emirate. Now, that's for elementary schools. The Taliban have not reopened girls' public high schools uh, in most provinces, which is a shame. But if they did, there's it's probably likely that there would actually be more girls in school now than under the U.S.-backed republic which is deeply ironic i agree but the fact of the matter is, is they haven't opened the schools yet um they and that's really what i went to afghanistan one of the reasons i went to afghanistan was to understand why because they they were they were been saying this is just temporary and they had kind of promised that on <clears throat> this new year of the afghan school year which is on march 23rd the schools were reopened, and there has been a plan that the girls went to school. And on that day, word came down from the education ministry that no, the schools wouldn't actually reopen. And there was media there to cover it, and so all these girls went home crying. It was it was a complete disaster, but also kind of baffling. You know, why would the Taliban do this? Why would they announce that they would open it, um, and and then cancel like this in a way that was deep deeply embarrassing for them? That broke so much trust not only with the Afghan people but with international community. Uh, And what I was surprised to discover in Kabul was that actually a lot of the Taliban officials that I spoke to, they were really frustrated with the ban. They really wanted girls to go back to school.
0: You know, in some cases... Including Sirajuddin Haqqani? That's the Haqqani, right? That's Jalaluddin's son and the main guy?
1: Sirajuddin Haqqani and his brothers and just the kind of element of the Taliban that he's part of the so-called economy network are actually the most socially, quote unquote, liberal of the Taliban and have been very much um, in favor of allowing girls to be educated. And uh, there's a lot of you know U.S. or international NGOs that when they had problems with their female employees working, because there are still Afghan women, when, women working in Afghanistan, definitely, when they had problems with other parts of the Taliban, they called up Siraj's guys. They called up Akani guys, hmm. and he helped them out. So th- there's another paradox for you, which is that you know the FBI's designated terrorist is actually one of the people who wants to allow girls to go back to school. And they're being frustrated by um, the hardliners in Kandahar around the supreme leader because the Taliban has sort of a dual authority structure where – you have a formal cabinet in Kabul, and then a second more powerful shadow government in Kandahar in the south, led by, you know, in this theocratic structure, the supreme leader, Sheikh Haibatullah. And a lot of these really hardline conservative clerics are blocking girls' education.
0: Hmm. Well, so first of all, I want to mention here, Padna Anand Gopal uh, had, you know, he really did the best job of explaining for Tom Dispatch and in his book, No Good Men Among the Living, about how Hakani tried to surrender at the beginning of the war, and the Americans refused to accept his surrender over and over again, uh, driving him to insurgency and driving him to be one of the worst, his organization be one of the worst parts of the anti-American insurgency for all those years there. Completely self-inflicted wound with that. But then I got a question, which is, I guess, a two-parter you really think it's right that they got Zawahiri? And do you really think it's right that he was staying at Sir Haqqani's house in Kabul? Because isn't that what the claim was? Or it was one of the Haqqanis, they said?
1: That is the American claim. You know, I was told by a senior Amer- administration official that the main leadership actually didn't know that al-Zawahiri was in Kabul and that he was being hosted by a faction um, of the Haqqanis, you know, connected to... Siraj, who's also the interior minister. Now, I'm you gotta be a little skeptical about this because the Americans are always trying to paint the Khanis as independent faction and isolate them um, in a way that I think is kind of becoming counterproductive. Um, but but it is possible, we just don't know. Um, what's what is true is that Siraj has been out as interior minister doing public events, so he's clearly not you know being broken with by the rest of the leadership. Um now was it right for the u.s to take him out with a drone strike i mean it's kind of hard to argue against killing the leader of al-qaeda except that it, it is you know is a little bit disturbing that we're, we're we're doing these kinds of assassinations without any real debate about their legality i mean it is um it is normally an illegal act, uh, you know, under international law to assassinate someone in a country um, without that country's consent. And maybe it was justified in this case, but it just doesn't seem to be any public debate about this, nor debate about the uh, the strategy going forward. I mean, why was Zawahi in, in Kabul? You know, that's a good question, right? If he had been running around the mountains of Afghanistan, presumably maybe where he wasn't under the Taliban's control, then... Um, Maybe it would make sense to take him out, but he's there in Kabul. It means he must. The Taliban must have some kind of control over him. If they're suppose, if the whole strategy in leaving Afghanistan was that you know the, the Taliban could be relied on to some extent to to, to follow their own interests and in not allowing Afghanistan to be used as a base for transnational terrorism, then then was there no way to to work with them? Um, But these are—it's a lot of speculation, Uh, and of course, it's—it's a—it's a a win for the Biden administration's you know over the over the horizon counterterrorism policy.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, he sure did deserve to be exploded to death. But the American way is you give a guy accused of a crime a trial, and then you prove he did it, and then you bury him in solitary confinement until he goes mad and kills himself. You know. that's the American way, but uh, I guess not. No, I mean, just explode the guy. But you know, his trial would have been great. You know what I mean? Give him like some of the the hardest core uh, ACLU lawyers in New York City to defend him, and then uh, make the Department of Justice prove their case. Wouldn't that have been something? Oh well, we don't do stuff like that.
1: Well, the Taliban doesn't doesn't do stuff like that. They would have never extradited zawahiri to the U.S. I mean, that was the same problem that they had with Osama bin Laden in 2001 but i'm not so sure about that how are you going to manage this problem in the long term you know i don't think it's manageable by playing whack-a-mole with drone drone strikes you know ultimately if the taliban are going to continue as the government of afghanistan which they have every indication of being stable for the moment um then then they need to be engaged with they need to be um part of the solution in managing these groups
0: yeah which by the way uh, isn't it the case that when this kind of thing happens that Al-Qaeda always comes right out and claims it? They don't admit it. They say, yeah, our hero has been martyred and is sitting at Allah's right hand now, so how do you like me now kind of thing, right? Have they done that in this case? Yeah. they Well, they've, they've,
1: they've commented on his death and, yeah, called him a martyr.
0: Oh, okay. I hadn't heard that. I went and looked at the site— Intel Group, which I know is Israeli intelligence, but they keep a close track on, um, or at least, you know, very friendly with Mossad, whatever, uh, however you define it. But they usually have, uh, you know, up-to-date announcements about what al-Qaeda is saying about things. But last time I checked, they didn't have anything on it yet. But Maybe
1: I got, it could be, it could be that they haven't actually released a statement yet. I know the Taliban have said that they're investigating, you know, what happened and if he was there, why he was really there.
0: But doesn't seem like. So you're saying you had heard that they can that Al Qaeda had confirmed it or not?
1: No, no, I, oh. I take that back. I don't. I don't know if that's I, for sure. I, I might be wrong on that one.
0: Okay, um, well, no problem. Um, but yeah, so that'll be interesting to see. I mean, it could be that they're just waiting until they, you know, put out their new magazine issue or whatever it is. Their their next new podcast. Um. So. Um, and then. Yeah, now, as far as, uh, I want to go back to what you were saying there about the way that they portray Haqqani as sort of a separate group from the Taliban. And, uh, you know, this is sort of the bridge, too, uh, in their implication of the Taliban for harboring al-Qaeda, at least the hawks, is they say, well, you know, maybe it's not Mullah Omar's son and this other faction of Taliban guys, but... It is Haqqani and his friends. They're the ones who are friends with the Arabs, and they're the ones who are going to host Arab terrorists against the Americans and as a base and this kind of thing. Um, which, by the way, I saw where, oh, I don't know if it's um, Siraj's cousin or what, but one of these Haqqanis got blown up by an ISIS suicide bomber the other day uh, or yesterday. Um, yeah,
1: that was Rahimullah Hakani. But, you know, the thing is, Haqqani is often used as a surname by people who are not related to the family at all, okay. but are graduates of the Haqqani um, madrasa. I see. So that was a Taliban ideologue who was who was blown up. Look, the thing is, is the Haqqani network is more or less a fiction that was created by the United States. Um, as a kind of boogeyman, you know the, there's there are a lot of different families, groups, networks you could call them within the Taliban. But sure. at the end of the day, they're not separate from the rest of the Taliban. There there there's been a lot of wishful thinking about the Taliban fragmenting over the years, and the fact of the matter is, is that they preserve their unity through twenty years. They've emerged united. They've managed to hold together through their first year on power. haqqani is the interior minister, and he. He, he he sits in the cabinet with the other Taliban um, ministers and they all defer to the Supreme Leader. Um is actually one of the deputies of the Supreme Leader. So I think the US is going to realise at some point that it's 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 counterproductive to um, to try to split the Haqqanis from the rest of the Taliban. And that actually the Hakanis, I think in many ways are some of the most reasonable people uh, who can be dealt with in um in Kabul, and, and, and there, there's, there's, you know, someone like Anas Haqqani has, has spoken with U.S. officials. Um, that's one of Haqqani's brothers. and
0: So, yeah, you quote one of them here saying, listen, if anybody wants to debate me about educating girls based on the Quran, I'm ready to debate them. And this is something that goes back to something, I guess I had learned from Anand Gopal, I don't know, years and years ago, uh, that he had written for Tom Dispatch and we had talked about even before his book came out, I guess, was that in many cases, the even most kind of austere interpretations of Islam are far more liberal than the Pashtun Wali Code, which goes back to, like, caveman times or whatever. So you have, you know, the Taliban coming to liberate women from the oppressive kind of customs and traditions of their villages and actually provide that, most importantly, they can own property they can inherit it they can even buy and sell it at least that was how it was you know as he was reporting that say 10 years ago in Taliban controlled parts of the country and in their previous history in power there where the Pashtunwali code was far more restrictive than that
1: yeah i think it's a stretch to say the Taliban are are liberating women um from Pashtunwali but they are certainly have ended the war and put an end to a lot of predatory behavior by government warlords. Uh, and, and in that sense, I think there are women who who support the Taliban in some communities. But at the end of the day, the Taliban are not a, really a pro women or, or feminist movement, and they're they're an they're an Islamist movement. And but you know, Afghanistan is a Muslim society, and the debate that they're going to have about what women's roles should be in society, um, what rights should be given to them, is going to have to take place, you know, within that d- discourse about Islam. It's not really one that we in the West uh, can can say a lot to. Um, but at the end of the day, it's 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 about what's right for Afghanistan, not, not what, and that's why the Taliban should educate girls. It's not about Western money. It's about their own daughters. And I think that a lot of Taliban that I spoke to did realize that. They, they know that their country needs female doctors and nurses in the very least. Um, but for now, unfortunately, the hardliners are blocking that kind of progress. But we just have to we just have to wait and see. I think the, the options for Afghanistan, we, we got used to kind of having a lot of control or the illusion of control over the lives of Afghans and the troops are gone now. So it's a very different relationship. And I think we need to uh, measure our expectations on what can be accomplished in Afghanistan. And while at the same time, listening to Afghan people, supporting them. And I, I feel like America is very eager to forget about the Afghan war on some level, you know, one... Biden administration official told me that the policy is now sort of keep Afghanistan off the front page. And I don't think that's, that's fair at Afghans. I think we um, caused a tremendous disaster in the country. We're responsible for people facing a horrible situation economically, also in terms of this government. And so,
0: so we, ought, we ought to keep supporting them. We ought not to turn our backs on the Afghans. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show, Matthew. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks
1: so much for having me. Take care, Scott.
0: All right, you guys, that's Matthew Aikens. You can find him at the New York Times Magazine. This one's called The Taliban's Dangerous Collision Course with the West. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSradio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.